thank you very, very much uh, for coming, everyone. Um, it's a real pleasure to, to have you here and to be able to, to launch uh, this, uh, this wonderful book. Um, I'm Catherine Fieschi. I'm the director of CounterPoint, um, which is the think tank of the British Council. Sitting all the way to my right, although uh, n nominally only, uh, is David <laughs> is David Chandler, Professor of International Relations uh, at the Centre for the Study of Democracy at the University of Westminster. He's also the editor of the journal Intervention and State Building, and his latest book, published in 2009, is Hollow Hegemony, Rethinking Global Politics, Power and Resistance. All the way to my left is Saskia Sassen, who is Robert S. Lynn Professor of Sociology at Columbia University, and who is a regular contributor also to uh, the uh, Open Democracy site and uh, to the Huffington uh, Post. Uh, she's the author, most recently, of Territory, Authority, Rights, From Medieval to Global Assemblages. And then immediately to my right is Doreen Massey, who is Professor of Geography at the Open University. Uh, and she's written over many years on why geography matters, uh, on cities, globalization, uh, and regional uneven development. And she's argued for the need to rethink space and place. This is what informs uh, most of her work. Among her books are Spatial Divisions of Labor, um, as well as Space, Place, and Gender, and finally For Space, as well as World city. So you can see that we have three uh, very different uh, types of, of contributions here, and I'm, think, uh, I'm thinking that uh, without further ado, I'm going to hang hand over to Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Catherine, and uh, thanks to everyone for coming along today. Of all the different crises, of all the shocking events surrounding the banks, neoliberalism, the state over the last couple of years. And let's be blunt, it's been quite absurd at times. When we think about what happened yesterday, 60 billion just taken out of taxpayers' money without us even being consulted. Absolutely shocking what's going on at the moment. But despite all this, one thing now clearly stands out. A radical alternative is not emerging to mobilise the masses. This is a truly shocking situation. It begs the question, what is radical politics today? Now, we, we, we asked that question uh, a couple of years ago. Um, it was the, the, the idea of the book came from uh, a, a debate that we did at the Royal Geographical Society with Tony Benn, uh, Bernard Crick, who's sadly no, no longer with us, Hilary Wainwright, and Dave Chandler at the end. And we, at the end of the discussion, we just turned around and said, well, what is radical politics today? You know, what, what, what's become of it? And um, obviously as the crisis sort of started to unfold a few months later, uh, that issue becomes uh, particularly important. And so we decided to just stand back and ask this question, what is the nature, the character and the spirit of radical politics in our times? When we say someone is being radical or doing radical politics, what do we actually mean? I just, just want to thank Doreen, Dave and Saskia for coming along. Um, and Doreen's going to speak now for uh, a few minutes, and then um, Dave and Daniel. So over to Doreen uh, on the question okay. of what is radical politics today? Yeah. I don't know if there's a direct answer to that question. Like we're all of us skirting around it in one way or another <laughs> and writing about what we want to say in this broad field. That's what one always does. And I want to start off um, almost a bit parochially, both in time and in space, because um, one of the themes in the piece, and of course we wrote these pieces 
well, I don't know, six months, I mean, the production has been fantastic, this is not a critique of the production process, oh. would it ever be, but um, of course it is a while ago, and things have moved on really fast, and one of the things I was arguing in my piece is that we need to take hold of the narrative of what is going on, otherwise it will be captured by the right. And of course now on the day that the book is published, I feel as though I'm living in a complete hall of mirrors. The narrative has been utterly captured by the right. I mean, we are told, and we are also told that people almost universally believe that the big problem in the United Kingdom at the moment is the existence of a deficit. We are told, and people appear to believe, that this deficit is caused overwhelmingly by too much government. And we are told that in order to address this fundamental problem in our economy, there's going to have to be public sector spending cuts. And David Cameron, in his speech at the Tory Party conference, never even mentioned bankers. As far as I remember, there wasn't a single mention of bankers. And that's going on when we know damn well that the deficit is not the major problem at this moment. That it was precisely government intervention that just saved us from potential massive financial collapse. And actually, you know, six months ago, even while we were writing these pieces, we were talking about the end of neoliberalism as a viable narrative with which to understand society. We were talking about the fact that market forces could no longer be claimed as something by which we could run society. And yet that seems almost entirely to have disappeared from popular discourse. Um, this could be, this should be in a way, a progressive moment, and yet it seems to me we have utterly lost control of the narrative. In, in, in the case of Cameron, that's obvious and you'd expect it, but New Labour has totally bought into the, the, the problem of being the public deficit. And in popular discourse, if you listen to phony programmes, I listen to Radio 5 Live all the time, and the, the, kind of, the, the background understandings of the situation that we are in is of that nature, right? And yet, although neoliberalism and everything it stands for, the individualism, the consumerism, the market forces, the competitiveness, all of that is now a deeply ingrained common sense. It's actually only 30 years old. It was, it was in the 1980s that this stuff was really made into the overarching framework by which not only the hegemony of society would be constructed, but also our individual subjectivities would be aligned. It's only 30 years. And it took a real struggle, both internationally and in this country, you know, from Chile to Nicaragua to London to the municipal councils, to establish this thing as um, an overriding hegemony. Now, what we need is a struggle to dislodge it again and to question the fundamental assumptions that have so quickly became common sense. And it seems to me that now, even when kind of good things happen, we don't construct them in terms of an overall narrative. So when I woke up one morning to be startled out of my wits to find that Gordon Brown was now in favour of a tax on financial transactions, it was in a sense just a policy. It wasn't woven into a bigger narrative, uh, a bigger story, a radical counter-narrative um, with different visions and values. And the reason that that is necessary is to turn this from being fundamentally only an economic crisis, 
to which there will be arguments, technical arguments about the solution, to turn it from being that into a genuinely political crisis which questions the values and the modes of behaviour and the assumptions about the way in which society works. So we need a counter-narrative, and we don't have one. I think we absolutely definitely have lost, for the moment, that battle. And that relates to the second point I want to make the own through. And that is that I think we've got very little sense on the left at the moment of the potential social forces either nationally or internationally, that could be, in a sense, recruited to our side. And I think there are a whole load of reasons for this. One thing is that this is, in a sense, their crisis. It was, we didn't create it. This isn't like the 19, the end of, of, of social democracy, when it was pressure on wages and the trades unions that were putting pressure on capital, and there, was, there were social forces out there, even if not necessarily the only ones you would want to take us forward. But this time there aren't no social forces that, that have produced the crisis that we're in. It, they themselves imploded. And so there's a kind of immediately, there's a kind of vacuum. And then if you look at party politics, it's totally engaged with Westminster manoeuvrings. The Labour Party, having lost what it has always thought of as its natural base, seems totally unable to construct a new one um, out of the current situation. And I, I think David is going to address this point later in what he says, but some of the the more radical alternative groups, particularly around, say, climate change or alter-globalisation, with whom I have in their politics an enormous amount of sympathy, have not found a way to address groups that are not immediately in favour of what they're on about. They don't know how to address those wider constituencies out there. I could go on. I think there's a, perhaps we can talk later about what I think is a failure of universities and progressive academics in this regard as well. Mm. But the point is that we need what we, what we had 30 years ago at the inauguration of this period of neoliberalism, is what we call conjunctural analysis, a deeper standing back and understanding of the, different, the ways in which this is more than an economic crisis. It's a crisis of culture too. It's a crisis of political discourse. And it involves differentially a whole load of what are not now social forces, but potential political constituencies, potential social forces. So it seems to me that there are out there a whole host of potential social forces, political constituencies, that are thoroughly fed up. And they're fed up in a whole variety of different ways. And we need to know how to interpolate that, how to speak to the ways in which people are at this moment discontented with the ways in which things are going on. And the one document which is referred to, I think, by myself, but also by a number of others in the uh, book is the Green New Deal, which was published by the New Economic Foundation, Economics Foundation, but which brings together a host of people from economics, from um, climate change and from the peak oil uh, arguments and does talk about how one might go about or begins to talk about how one might go about constructing alliances in their case particularly against the domination of finance both in this country and internationally and how one, one needs to address different, different groups of people for the particular ways in which they are being caught up in the current disaster. The third and final point I want to make, and which 
would be one of the things I would want to do with the Green New Deal is that we need to think more internationally. Um, this must be a moment for internationalism. Um, and because we're also caught up in, in this here, this disaster at the moment at home, maybe we have forgotten that a little. And I just want to make two points about, and we can come back to it, about what I think we ought to be doing. The first concerns taking responsibility for Britain's role in the world. And obviously there's all the arguments over Afghanistan and Iraq, and then there is a beginning to take responsibility for things like climate change and the degree to which we contribute to it by being a high-consuming country. But there's also thinking about what the effects are over the planet as a whole of the way in which we run our economy. Uh, the, the World City book that you mentioned, Catherine, at the beginning that I wrote 2007 talks about this quite a lot. When we attack finance in this country, we should also be attacking it for the effects it has around the world. For the way in which, I mean, we tend to blame global forces or the United States for the financial crisis, but actually the city of London, capital C, was one of the places where financial neoliberalism was born. It is one of the places from which it has been most effectively disseminated around the planet. They have argued for and perpetrated deregulation, privatisation around the planet. They are host to vulture funds that buy up debt of countries in the global south and then hold those countries to ransom. They are host to tax havens, which effectively rob uh, the global south as well as us of billions of, of pounds every year. So we need to think of this thing that calls itself the golden goose of our economy, not just challenging it on its home ground, but challenging it for the ways in which it operates around the world and, I would argue, the extremely reactionary effects that it has. So one thing, then, is taking responsibility for our place in the world in a wider way than we often do. And the other thing is, I think we need a much more explicit, active, vocal solidarity with the good things that are happening around the world. When I talked about the, the lack of relation between radicalism and political constituencies, one of the places that is happening, and where I am quite a lot involved, is in Latin America. There are some incredible um, imaginations of possible new futures and serious thinking about democracy and of alternative economic uh, ways of running economies going on in a whole range of Latin American countries across quite a range of politics as well. Um, and we almost don't look at it. It's only on, occasionally on the left that we have meetings about it. And it doesn't figure in the wider political discourse. We made quite correctly in the newspapers a whole a whole fuss about the uh, problems of the election in Iran, for instance. Well, on June the 28th this year, the Honduran government was overthrown. The, the president was whisked out of the country. We all know this, landing at an American base on his way out. And yet hardly, we've heard hardly anything in this country about that. There are elections going to take place on the 29th, which will basically ratify that coup in the sense that they, there'll be elections in which the left is not participating, cannot participate. They are elections organised by the perpetrators of the coup. They are elections in which there will not be a voice because of clamps down on the media for the left. And yet we hear very little about it. Obama has already said that he's likely to agree to the results of those elections. 
An attack on Honduras is a way of saying to other countries in Latin America, be careful. The age of, of intervention and of overthrowing the left could be back. Right? There is, a, it is a real kind of toe in the door, and it's a mirror also of the of the coup that was attempted against Chavez in 2002 in Venezuela. This is another of those moments of saying, you be careful, right? By the so the elite social forces in Latin America, with because of our silence, a kind of complicity by us, even though the EU and Britain have made good statements. We want a much more active, I think, international understanding of the social forces in other continents and other places that could be part of constructing um, a progressive alternative to the neoliberalism which is crashing around our ears at the moment. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I don't know uh, what, is, what is radical politics. Um, and like every discussion of these things is a different discussion with different people, often from different planets. And um, I don't know. I think that um, I think that radical politics is a problem, not as much as it's an absence, but in terms of it being a presence. And I think as long as we cling to something that we call radical politics, we evade being honest about the situation in the world, and we set up barriers to addressing it. And if only, if only we lived in a world where we could just sit around and write chapters and we'll think of an idea that would mobilise the masses, as John was saying. Um, or, um, as Doreen was saying, that we could just turn this economic crisis into a political crisis. Uh, you know, what, what is the problem? You know, if only we could just take up this thing called radical politics and give it to the sad and benighted and unenlightened, unenlightened we could begin to do something. And um, I don't think that we live in a world like that, where there's the masses and the social forces uh, that can be mobilised. And we don't live in a world where the ideas that can mobilise them, we can just take off a peg somewhere. And if we live in a world like that, then we can have a meaningful discussion about what radical politics might be. And I sort of think that um, often when we discuss this question, there's a reason why it's a question. And as Doreen talks about a vacuum, let's just pursue what a vacuum might be and turn that little vacuum, that minor problem, into what might be a larger abyss of darkness. And um, maybe the problem that we're trying to negotiate when we don't know, for some people radical politics is something that we do every day when we think about the environment or say no or think no or think about um, other people and their struggles and their imaginations and how we might imagine their imaginations. For other people, radical politics might be an impossibility. And I think that the question we face is a disjunction between politics, how we imagine ourselves, how we imagine our capacity to intervene, to control, to shape things, to be heard, to, to count, how we imagine the distance between that and power, whatever we imagine power to be. And traditionally, our discussion about the crisis has got something to do with globalisation or the global. And normally, I think behind all these things, there's a consensus that says 
that power has escaped the reaches of politics. And quite often that's understood as politics is something that we do inside states with political parties and equality under the law and voting and all that sort of stuff. And it appears that power has migrated upwards to this global sphere. And there's an interesting contradiction. That, and, and Doreen is right to say that there's a narrative. You know, the narrative is that states are now powerless, that power is beyond what we used to call power. And that makes politics quite difficult. If it's sort of a global, as a lot of radicals, not the people on the panel necessarily, uh, a lot of radical people would argue that power has disappeared into the global flows of cyberspace where business... I said not you guys. Anyway, what I wanted to say is that generally there's a conception that we don't really know where power is, where it's located. And governments don't really help because governments say, hey, there's power everywhere except where we are. Don't go thinking about us as being responsible for something. It's globalisation. Gordon Brown is brilliant. You know, since there's global problems that need global solutions. You know, me, I'm just an activist like you. You know, I want to campaign to save the environment, feed people in Africa, do the credit, you know, solve the credit crunch. But we don't have any power. I don't have any power. And the more that governments don't have any power, the more that there's a narrative about the global, it's like, well, you know, what do we do? Or what could we do? Uh, what, you know, what would make it sense? And it seems that power has all the trump cards. The Doreen powers, powers giving us the narrative and re, you know, reshaping our minds and making us uh, think that uh, these things are natural or whatever. And for other radicals, uh, power is also dominating us and you know, intervening directly in this global world where power seems to be free from the constraints of the political. And then we talk about sometimes, not always, not necessarily here, they talk about how can we get politics to the global level? How can we create mechanisms in which meaning can be there? How, can, how do we do activities that can constrain this global power? Or as Saskia will tell us, how do we get states to think about doing something to constrain global power? And all I want to say is that I don't think power and politics have been divorced. That um, when we say that, that power is suddenly somewhat out there and amorphously, and therefore we have to rethink what politics is, and we try and bridge that gap in different ways and different strategies and different tactics by using states, by having a rainbow coalition of green and, and nice people that have other good causes and getting together. All I'm sort of saying is I don't think that that's right. I have a much darker vision, but it's quite a contingent vision. But what we're witnessing, this implosion, this disjunction between power and politics, hasn't come from outside hasn't got to do with globalisation and economic and social forces. But actually, our heads have changed much more. Our experiences of ourselves and our capacities collectively and our experience of states and what they can do has been diminished and diminished and diminished. And I think that our lack of engagement in the world of politics, our, our lack of engagement in political parties and other collective frameworks means that we see the world differently to how we used to. That we don't have a clear, collective, mediating view, whether it's nationally, you know, we don't feel particularly nationalistic or regionalistic or political or ideological. All the different mediating frameworks that gave our identity something beyond us as individuals seem to have worn away. And in that wearing away, we confront the globe 
unmediatedly as individuals. And as we all might know, our, the more we experience something as individuals, if you go somewhere to a country on your own, or you're speaking at a conference without anyone that might agree with your view, you're a bit more timid. You're a bit, you know, you can't really see the wood for the trees. And I think the world looks complex and impossible to manage because our heads have changed, our relationships to our own societies have changed. And I don't think that power has suddenly got all the answers and all the tricks or emigrated to the global level. I think that what we call politics and what we call power exists with us, essentially. And I think that we can't just think about a magical solution to our lack of engagement in the world. We have to create frameworks of engagement. We have to create ways of thinking, of connecting with people, of creating collectivities. Because there is no academic solution to the problem of what's happened to radical politics. There's no like transitional program that a Trotskyist might have. No wonderful thing about the environment. Because as long as we just see the world as individuals, we're going to do polit even if we did radical politics. It would be ethics. If we don't know where power is, how are we going to be involved instrumentally or strategically? How, how can we test our ideas out? What forces us to engage with people? The thing with at least having an idea where power is, and it really existing at a state level, is at least you can say, well, how do we get control of power? You know, power used to be a good thing if you wanted to change the world. And all I'm suggesting, I'm not fetishising states or saying that they have power. In fact, I'd argue that they don't have power. I'd argue where power resides is within us as collectivities. And the withdrawal of us from politics means that politics doesn't exist. And it means that power doesn't exist as a political and consciously meaningful thing. All we have is the world and things happening. And all we can do is respond to them or be resilient or whatever. And the impossibility of politics, which is what I would see the world that we live in now, isn't something that's imposed because suddenly we have the internet or financial things exist or something. The impossibility of politics exists because we aren't taking responsibility for thinking in a vacuum, for thinking in an abyss, and for thinking if we want politics to exist, it's our responsibility to construct it and to think it. And the more that we discuss something called radical politics, the more we, that we think that there are shortcuts or solutions or some petition we can send to a government, that is not going to resolve the political crisis. Politics doesn't exist without people. And it's, we are the only solution. And as long as we think that someone else is going to do it for us, uh, there'll never be a solution. And so I want to be positive and say that the death of politics or our inability to grasp what radical politics might be isn't something that's imposed or necessary, but uh, to, to recreate it, you know, we're the only people that can do it. My view. Thank you very much. I think that segues quite neatly. Uh, well, I agree with. Um, should I have this microphone a bit closer? Yeah. yeah. I agree with um, with a lot of what has been said. But I'm also glad to read, for instance, that you, towards the end, recovered the fact that a lot of what has been said here pertains to the global north, rich, developed countries. 
And one issue is that we have sort of become consumers of our citizenship, of our democracy, of politics. Because when you look around the world, there's actually quite a bit of radical politics that is being made. In China, there are revolts every day. There are people who are fighting for freedom of expression. When Obama was there, he sort of passed beneath his radio screen completely. And uh, the global south, I mean, Latin America, is extraordinary what's happening, the epistemologies of the south. So we do need this global perspective. And uh, however, we in the North have a very serious problem. So I agree with what Dave, David right? mm. David said, but I see it as very much the story of the North. So, so one, one thought then, I want to just share two or three thoughts. So one thought is, how do we in the North get out of this notion of just consuming our consuming the existing politics, you know. We have to make the political. Now, a framing, a framing sort of umbrella for me when I'm doing my research on the present, on this present, our modernity, so to say, in the global north, is that it is a time when stabilized meanings have become unstable. So the meaning of politics, for me, the formal political apparatus barely engages in politics. No, it, 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 the state is an administrative capability. It makes policies, etc. It is not a political entity. I think political parties are a bit of a, along those lines as well. So the question then is, in our global north, uh, in our rich developed countries, etc., where is politics being made? Now, if you work with immigrants, you know, we all are aware of that. Actually, the, they are making politics, partly to survive, you know, in certain, certain groups. And they go to court on human rights issues. You know, that the judiciary becomes a place for making politics if you have a contestatory claim that you bring to a court. Uh, cultural festivals, in a way are a way of making politics. And they, they matter, but it's clearly not enough. So for me, one of the critical issues, and that is the way what I, what I then get to in the book, is how, how can we reappropriate our state? And the starting point here is that, again, coming back to this notion that stabilized meanings have become unstable. By the way, I should say, I don't think any meaning is permanently stable, that there are periods when histories, geographies, projects, projects of power, projects of those without power come together and generate a certain kind of stability of meaning. Now, for me, the state today is a, is a, has become an unstable meaning. And there are two issues. I can't really develop that completely. But one of them is that the internal differentiations within the state. They have long existed. The state is a site for conflicts. I, I still think that Pulanzas did a great job on all of that. Nikos um, Pulanzas. And um, the other thing, and this again in my work on globalization, is that the executive branch of the prime ministerial office, whatever you know, the regime, uh, has gained enormous power because of globalization that then also contest this notion that we have globalization and the state doesn't have power. Many parts of the state have lost power, but not the executive branch of government, the most powerful always, the least democratic, and the one where we, the citizens, have the least standing. Our strong standing is the legislative pardon. And if we are judiciary activists with the courts, 
at the executive and the prime minister office, and for me, Blair epitomizes that with his kitchen cabinet and all of that. So, so, so one of the issues for us is really, you know, how to reappropriate the state. Now, I want to, to, I then play around a bit with this notion of the state in my chapter, because I argue, look, if I take a detached look of what has been happening with these so-called liberal democracies in the last 20 years, what I see is a rather strong uh, uh, um, sort of the state evinces a strong disposition towards internationalism. The problem is it's a certain kind of internationalism. It was to make a global corporate economy the condition for a global to make the possibilities for global financial markets. The state worked very hard. Well, certain parts of the state, especially the executive branch of government, fine ministers of finance, treasury, whatever the names, and, and all of that. So the question for me is, can one sort of take distance and look at the state as a capability that is actually far more complex than the richest multinational corporation? which is basically a rather elementary organizational form. Ultimately, with a rather centralized control, a project that spreads throughout all its different parts. The state has, the, the kind of state that we are familiar with, the modern state, so to say, has always had to contain all kinds of conflicts inside of it. So the state, seen from a distance, when you don't get into the nitty-gritty of the damage and the horrors <laughs> that, in my view, national states have done worldwide and inside their own countries. Maybe the Keynesian period is really the exception here. I think that was a good period in many ways, but it was also a racist period, exclusionary period. But anyhow, again, repeating, seen from a distance, the question becomes if we can look at the state as a capability, which in the last 20 years, in fact, has developed, reactivated a kind of global geography for its operations. Let's call it internationalism, which of course it has had in its imperial uh, phases, but today it's different. So the capacity, what I'm really, let me just nail it down, let me be pragmatic for a minute here, and, uh, and say, you know, all kinds of, of uh, government functionaries have learned, really, how to work with the government functionaries of other countries around questions of terrorism, around questions of global trade, around questions of global finance, a lot of negative things. However, the question is, has the state developed some international muscles, reappropriated? Can it be re-geared towards global environmental issues, global justice issues? So how do we stop the question of, uh, of uh, you know, we have the capacity to feed the whole world several times over and we have more desperately hungry people than we've ever had before. So those are the kinds of issues. Now, the state is not enough, and so I want to just use a few more minutes to talk about what I see as the other side. But I want to say that I do think that the state, I'm not ready to give it up as a capability. I want a denationalized capability that is a state, and I think it has to be a collaborative internationalist kind of space of operations for certain kinds of projects. And that means that a lot of politics has to be done that goes beyond perhaps existing political parties, you know, certainly in our country, in the United States, it's a sort of a total mess there. But um, now the, the, the other aspect for me, the question that, that D David kept bringing up, which is a question of power. And there again, one, one of the 
the propositions, the umbrella ideas that I work with, is starting again, if you want, from from the notion of that certain meanings have become unstable. I think today, not in our global north countries, not in our fat liberal democracies, which by the way have a lot of poverty too and inequality, but but whether powerlessness is also an unstable meaning. And so I, I sort of launch a, it's like a working hypothesis. And it is that under certain conditions, powerlessness becomes complex. And I want to stay within powerlessness. It's not that at this end is empowerment. Empowerment is another matter. I ask myself, even if you remain powerless, is your powerlessness actually under certain conditions complex? And in that complexity, then, is there the possibility of making a history, making a politics? And I think what we're seeing in the global south, what we're seeing with the revolts in China, what we're seeing with, there is that. Also, a lot of the kind of activism that is much more within sort of the liberal democratic frame, but still very radical that you see in India, for instance, you know. Uh, there's, there's a lot of organizing activity. There's also a vast amount of poverty that is growing. I'm not saying that. So I want to stay outside of the frame, which is a typical one. It's okay, if, you're, if anything happens to your powerlessness that's good, it's got to mean empowerment. I think that's a big deal, empowerment. Um, it can also take, one of the things that I went in this, in this book that I worked on for many years, I asked myself, do those without power get to make history? Very often they do. They do under certain conditions. And they also need more time. It often is a multi-generational project. There's a temporal dimension that is very different from what it is um, with those who have power. And so, so um, in that sense, I think that when we look at outside our liberal democracies, our rich countries, um, or our countries with lots of rich people, uh, what, I, what I do see is that powerlessness is unstable right now in the sense that it is complex. Mm-hmm. And you sense the potential of making history. Final point, when you look historically, um, and I went back to medieval times, etc., in this last work of mine, um, no, system, no formalized system of power has been brought down by a greater power. That is very rare. But there are battles, there are wars, but to really bring down a system, that takes quite a bit. Look at the Roman Empire, look at you know all the big empires. I mean, it's interesting to see how how empires end, or the military dictatorships in Latin America. You know, it's not like the U.S. came and liberated them. No, no, no. <laughs> they imploded. Too much blood, too much abuse. I mean, the, the joke, of course, in Argentina is that it was the abuse by the military dictators and the fact that under them, Argentina lost the World Cup. You know, in soccer, <laughs> and that may have had an impact. Who knows? But, but um, so then the question is. Is it actually the those without power who have perhaps the keenest interest to bring their power down? That in their own multiple ways, often in, with truncated histories and often with invisible history, who actually contribute in a very significant way to bring 
power down. Now, the question of narration, which is one that Doreen brought up, you know, who narrates our histories? You know? mm-hmm. What are the categories? We, we're very stuck on power and powerlessness as absolute total conditions. And I look at power as made. It's constructed. It needs conditionalities. That is what the state did. The executive branch of government made the power, contributed to make the power of you know, the global corporate sector, etc. Um, and powerlessness is made. If these are made, they can also be unmade, but it takes making. So for me, the question of radical politics, ultimately, and I've really become a pragmatist, I must say, it's the making of it. You know, it's, we have to make it. And in this country, in these countries, I mean, like the U.S. and the U.K., we're going to have, we seem to be having far more difficulty in making it than, than in other countries where people are dying. I mean, including the human rights lawyers in the post-Soviet domain, you know, who are dying for it. But there is a lot of radical politics happening. It's mm-hmm. just in our rich democracies where it isn't. 